Good morning. My name is Karen Wilkes. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John 13, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, parents and guardians of children in preschool and kindergarten are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Common upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Katie, and I'm on staff here at Haverhill Commons. I'm so glad to be here with you all this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment to pause in silence and ask the Spirit to help quiet any distractions we may be holding on to. I'll close us in a moment of prayer. God, we come before you desiring to know you more. Help us to hear your word and seek your will for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. A little over a year ago, I moved into my first solo apartment. I've had some great apartments in the past, some great roommates, some other great living situations, some of those thanks to several of you in this room. 
but I've also had some not-so-great apartments and roommates in the past, too. So I was really excited to finally have my own space. And for the most part, it's been a dream. But having my own apartment comes with its challenges, too, like furnishing and decorating a completely empty living room. Now, thankfully, with the help of some good thrift store finds and an active Buy Nothing Facebook group, I was able to find a lot of what I wanted fairly quickly and inexpensively. But the one larger piece of furniture that I had trouble finding was a TV stand. Partly because I specifically wanted a shorter white stand with drawers to fit in with the rest of my furniture. So I started shopping around for a new one. A friend who knew I was still in the market for some household things said that she was going to Ikea and asked if I needed anything. As it turns out, I had been leaning towards an Ikea TV stand that fit the look I wanted perfectly. It was the right height and length for my wall, it had two drawers, two display shelves, and it was painted white. Unfortunately, I wasn't available to go with her, but she offered to pick up the stand for me, so I sent her the link, and she even offered to drop it off for me as well. The next day, I opened up the box, fully prepared to put the stand together myself. I didn't really need help. I mean, I've put together IKEA bookshelves by myself before. How much more difficult could a TV stand be? Well, turns out it was a good bit more difficult <laughs> and more time-consuming. Between reading the instructions, figuring out which parts went where, making sure I had the right tools, rereading the instructions, building the drawers, installing tracks for the drawers, checking the instructions yet again, and piecing everything together, I spent several hours working on trying to build this stand. When I finally finished and was ready to put the stand in place, I was excited and felt so accomplished. I turned the stand right side up and shimmied it into place up against the wall because it was too heavy to pick up and move by myself. But I got it in place, placed my TV on top of it, and went to sit down on the sofa to admire my handiwork. As I sat back, the first thing I noticed was that my all-white TV stand wasn't all-white. The board on the inside at the back of the display shelves was brown. Bright particle board brown. Not the color of the backboard in the photos. At first I thought, that's weird, maybe they just expect you to fill the shelves up so you can't see the backboard. But then I had a realization and looked at the back of my TV stand. The crisp, clean, bright white back of my TV stand facing the wall. I had installed the backboard with the wrong side facing out. Well, thankfully, I figured out a solution that didn't require laying the heavy stand back down and working for another hour to uninstall and then reinstall the backboard. I covered the brown side with some contact paper. And while it still looks good, every time I look at the contact paper, I'm reminded that the back is installed incorrectly. And I can't help but think that maybe if I had asked someone to help me build the stand, maybe it wouldn't have taken so long to build. Maybe I would have had more fun building it. And maybe another person might have caught my error before I finished putting it on the first time. So while I'm proud of the finished product, and my living room is easily my favorite room in my apartment, I'm not proud of how I let my desire to prove my capabilities and independence, in other words, my pride, 
get in the way of allowing myself to ask for help. Pride is a tricky thing, isn't it? If you were to ask me which of the seven deadly sins I struggle with the most, pride would not be near the top of my list. Because I like to think of myself as a pretty humble person. Yet that in itself is a form of pride. Especially when I use it to compare myself to other people and justify for myself how much more humble I am. Which I do way more often than I would like to admit. How do you experience pride? Sometimes feeling pride is a good thing, right? Authentic pride, experienced in response to a specific event or accomplishment, or felt towards a person or group that we care about, can lead us to feeling more confident and fulfilled. In fact, University of Miami psychologist Charles Carver found that those who regularly experience authentic pride have greater self-control, perseverance, and are more likely to reach their goals. Feeling pride inspires us to do and be our best. Being proud, though, is often where we run into trouble. Being proud leads us to have an inflated self-image. Being proud is a symptom of self-centeredness. This kind of pride is also known as hubristic pride. Now, for any kids in the room, it's been a while since we had a vocab word of the week, so here's your word. Hubris basically means being overconfident, thinking too highly of yourself. It's when you think you're so awesome and everyone else isn't. It's like how Gaston in The Beauty and the Beast thought that he was the strongest, most handsome, most impressive man of all the men. Well, authentic pride allows us to feel pride when we're good at something, good at listening, or good at teaching, good at singing, good at a sport. But hubristic pride tells us that we're the most, or the best, of something. The most beautiful, the most popular, the most intelligent, the most capable, the best singer, the best athlete, the best at being a good friend. The problem with this kind of pride is it's not always easy to spot, especially in ourselves. We might do something because we think that we're trying to communicate what a good person we are, but in reality, we're often trying to show that we're a better person than someone else. For instance, maybe your hubris comes out when your intelligence is challenged. You want to prove that you're smarter than someone else, so you struggle to admit when you're wrong. Maybe you have a tendency to think that your way of doing things is the right way of doing things, the best way of doing them, and you don't leave space for others to do things differently. Or you believe that your value is based on your performance, that you're the best employee at your job, so you work extra long hours to the detriment of your family and relationships. Maybe you think poorly of people with other political or religious beliefs and you don't listen to or try to understand where they're coming from. You want to be the most dependable person, so you have a hard time saying no, and want to please other people so they think more highly of you. You worry so much about what people think of you, worry about them thinking less of you, that you let it determine how you act or the choices that you make. Maybe your pride shows up as false humility, you want to be the most humble, so you deflect praise or compliments from others rather than just accepting them. 
or you do serve others, but only when it, ben when it benefits you in some way. You want the freedom to decide how to live your life, so you don't submit your life or your choices to God. Or just maybe, like me with my TV stand, you want to be strong, independent, the most capable. And your problems really aren't all that bad, right? You can handle it. So you struggle to be vulnerable and admit when you need help. Pride is sneaky. It grows up like weeds and takes over, controlling our thoughts and our actions, our relationships, how we navigate our place in the world. It shows up in ways that we don't expect or in ways that we wouldn't even think to identify as pride. It's so sneaky that, like me, you might be thinking that you're not very prideful because you think you're better, stronger than you really are. So then how do we recognize it? How do we grow to have a more accurate picture of ourselves in relationship to others, and more importantly, to God? In our passage that Karen read for us this morning, I think Jesus provides us with a template for how to begin to distance ourselves from our pride. This week, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of John with a new sermon series, The Hour of Glory. Now, as we've worked our way through John over the last several months, we've divided the book up into smaller series centered on different themes throughout the book. As a refresher, our first series in John was Come, See, Stay following Jesus in the Gospel of John. We covered chapters 1 to 4, and our focus was on Jesus' call to us to be his disciples, to come, see, and stay with Jesus. And our second series, Signs and Wonders, covered chapters 7 to 12 and focused on the various miracles that Jesus performed that directed our gaze towards his identity as the Son of God. Now, the Hour of Glory picks up here in chapter 13, a few days after the dinner thrown by Mary and Martha to thank Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead, and just before the Passover celebration. Now, up to this point, Jesus has mentioned multiple times throughout the Gospel of John that his hour had not yet come. But we see here in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father his hour of glory. And so we begin the section of John's gospel called the farewell discourse or farewell teachings from Jesus to the 12 disciples as he invites them in, although they don't yet understand it, to his coming death and resurrection. Now the first five verses of chapter 13 act as a prologue to the discourse as they set the scene for what's to come. With Jesus' hour of glory quickly approaching, John frames the evening around Jesus' love for his disciples, telling us he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And it was because of that love for his disciples that he did something unexpected and shocking. He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Well, washing your feet at dinner, much less someone else's feet, in front of other people might seem like a strange thing to do for us today, 
foot washing was a common practice in Jesus' day. In a way, it was similar to how we take off our shoes when we visit someone else's home. It was a way to keep any dirt collected outside from coming into the home. So when a host would have people over, they would leave a basin and towel at the entrance of their home for their guests to use when they arrived. And foot washing was not a fun task. In ancient times, most people wore sandals or no shoes at all. But foot washing didn't just involve washing off the dust and mud from the streets. It also included washing off the remains of animal waste left in the roads, as well as human waste, which was often tipped out of houses and into the streets below. So the host would have their lowest-ranking servant or slave, typically a woman, wash their guests' feet upon their arrival to the home. Jesus, however, made a deliberate decision during dinner to get up and wash the disciples' feet. Maybe they had already been washed once when they arrived, but maybe not. Either way, nowhere else in ancient literature is there evidence of someone of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of those lower than them in social standing. Yet Jesus, who had, given, who had been given authority over everything and was of the most superior status, humbled himself to take on the role of a slave. Which makes me wonder what the disciples were thinking when they realized what Jesus was doing. The man washing their feet was their rabbi, their teacher, the one they looked up to, the one who taught them and corrected them, the one who they believed would overthrow the oppressive leaders of Rome and rule over the new Jerusalem. That man is the one who gets up from the table and washes their feet. So it's no wonder that when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter reacted so strongly and questioned him, saying, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Now, honestly, this initial reaction from Peter feels like an appropriate one. Peter is responding out of an accurate understanding of Jesus' superior position. And yet, there's also a sense in which Peter's question betrays his proudly humble posture. The other disciples allowed Jesus to wash their feet. It wasn't until he came to Peter that there was an objection, because Peter wanted to be the most humble. Surely, he wasn't worthy of having Jesus, the one he calls rabbi and Lord, wash his feet. And even after Jesus responds to Peter's question, Peter doubles down in his proud humility and commands that Jesus will never, ever wash his feet. Jesus replies to Peter, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me, Jesus tells Peter, and each of us, that if we are too proud to receive his grace, we will miss out on his presence entirely. Now, it's easy for us to say that we need grace, to sing songs about needing grace, but when it comes down to our day-to-day -day experiences, 
we aren't as quick to say that we need help, that we need help dealing with our families or with the ways that we spend our time, with our addictions, our mental health, or with our self-image. But if we think that we don't need help, then Jesus has nothing to offer us. Because Jesus' forgiveness of our sins, his cleansing of us and of our pride, is the very foundation of our relationship with him. So, in typical Peter style, he exclaims that he wants Jesus to wash all of him, not just his feet. He wants even more than Jesus is offering. And I get it. If just allowing Jesus to wash his feet means that he belongs to Jesus, of course he wants to be as close in relationship to Jesus as he can be, right? Unless his motivation isn't that he just wants to be close to Jesus. Maybe he wants to be the disciple who is the most close to Jesus. You can almost already hear him bragging. All you other disciples only had your feet washed, but I had my whole body washed. Well, Jesus corrects Peter and assures him that once he allows his feet to be cleaned and he receives the freely given grace Jesus is offering to him, just as it is, he will be completely clean. There is no longer anything that Peter or we need to do to accept Jesus' gift of grace. Nothing out of our own merit or our own deserving other than believing in Jesus and his promise. Jesus shows by his love for his disciples that grace comes not through a posture of pride, but one of humility. Jesus demonstrates time and time again that though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Jesus, who had every right to maneuver throughout the world with all of the power and privilege and pride that deservedly belongs to God, instead chose to give it all up. He took on the position of a slave and died the death of a criminal on the cross. Jesus entered into our suffering and our weaknesses so that he could connect with us and with our great need in order to save us. He came to help us see how deeply we do need help and where our ultimate help comes from. It is only when we can come before Jesus and admit, I do need help, that we can begin to let go of the pride rooted deeply inside of us. And only once we've begun to surrender our pride can we then truly follow the instructions Jesus gave after washing the disciples' feet. After the washing, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Upon washing the disciples' feet, Jesus tells them that they can participate with him in sharing the gospel message by imitating his example of service, forgiveness, and patience. When we first admit our need and surrender our pride and enter into mutual service with one another, not because it benefits us or raises our social standing, 
but out of a desire and a commitment to love one another as Jesus loved us. That is when we are following the humility of Christ. And it doesn't just come from serving and loving those who are easy to love. In verse 11, we see that Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. At this point, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, and yet he still chooses to wash Judas' feet. We know he washed Judas' feet because later on in our chapter, Jesus again mentions that one of them will betray him. And the disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. If he had chosen to not wash Judas's feet, it would have been obvious to them that it was because he would be the one to betray Jesus. Now, I want to be sure to say here that I don't think Jesus' example of washing Judas's feet means that we have to seek to serve those who are actively, whether intentionally or not, harming us in the same ways that we would serve others. Loving our enemies doesn't mean tolerating or permitting abuse. I do think, though, that there is a sense in which we can still humbly serve them. Maybe, in that case, serving them looks like removing yourself from the relationship or establishing boundaries that protect you from harm. Whatever it might look like for you, I don't believe that God calls us to remain in abusive situations. I do believe, though, that he calls us to serve those we might not necessarily always like. Maybe he's calling you to serve those who, in your pride, you tend to look down on. True humility is not an easy thing to practice because it requires seeing our own and other people's worth with a God's eye view and treating them accordingly. C.S. Lewis once said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. True humility, admitting our need, and accepting Jesus' grace grounds us in our appropriate place, not looking down on others, but also not looking down on ourselves either. True humility says that we are all in the same boat, No one above, no one below. We all have the same need. And that need and that grace flows out of the security of knowing that we are fully known and loved by God, not because of our strengths and in spite of our weaknesses. Once we have that security, that is when we can truly take on the mindset of Christ and serve others with a posture of humility rather than pride. Instead of seeking out our own ambitions or attempting to raise our own status, we will begin to empty ourselves out for the sake of our neighbors. Instead of prioritizing our individual success, we will begin to prioritize peace and prosperity in our communities. And instead of leveraging people and profits for our own gain, we will begin to pursue the flourishing of others in the name of Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us to see you and to see ourselves accurately. Help us to recognize and repent of our pride, to come before you and receive your gift of grace so that we can begin to more closely reflect your humility. 
Jesus, we need your help. We can't do it on our own. We need you to save us. We love you, and we thank you for your gift of grace. It's in your name we pray.